Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, recovering my strength uh, a week after the event, and I'm here again with uh, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Uh, hello, Andy. And the event isn't just having to endure another episode with me, but of course, Andy's referring to his um, uh, hospital vigil, and he is—he's back from surgery. So, yeah, I thought maybe he was referring to uh, to the judiciary hearing uh, as the traumatic event. <laughs> Well, it may have been traumatic for some. Um, and that other voice you heard is once again, uh, we were luck- so lucky to have um, Dean and Professor Vic Amar from the University of uh, Illinois School of Law. Um, welcome back, Vic. Thank you both. And as promised, we're going to get into the uh, confirmation hearings, into the nitty gritty. Um, last time we had the great privilege of hearing from Vic on uh, what the chairman of the committee, the House, the Senate Judiciary Committee, I made that same mistake last time, um, Dick Durbin, uh, had to say about it um, in an um, event held at Vic's Law School. And uh, now we're going to listen to members of the committee, although actually not Senator Durbin, but I've got um, various clips that, that we've taken from the hearings. And I think the idea uh, behind these clips is not necessarily to go through all the back and forth on some of the issues or pseudo issues that may have been raised, but rather to give a sense of the sort of different classes of questions that were asked, some of the dynamics of the hearing, and also some issues that may not reflect reflect on the hearing itself, but are still interesting issues um, that, that came up. So let's start off with... Uh, Chuck Grassley, who uh, is the ranking member uh, in the minority, a Republican, on the committee, and who was praised by uh, Senator Durbin. What did, what did he have to say about him, Vic? He said that uh, Senator Grassley, though not a lawyer, has really worked hard over the years to educate himself uh, about these processes, and he equips himself well. But more than that, Senator Durbin praised I think the approach that Senator Grassley brought to interacting with the Democrats, he thought that Senator Grassley was a fair uh, broker. And uh, although they have obviously different opinions about constitutional visions, uh, he didn't feel that Senator Grassley uh, is the kind of person to take cheap shots or or, or unduly grandstand. Now, so some some level of grandstanding is 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 okay then. Well, it is. It, this is the United States Senate. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think I'm not going to play most of the stuff from the first day, because the first day was really one Senate senator's speech after another. The judge was was barely heard from. Um, so I, I don't think that's that informative. There's no back and forth. But here's here's um, a brief clip from uh, Senator Grassley. Well, let me ask it this way. Do the First Amendment free speech protections apply equally to conservative and liberal protesters? Yes, Senator. Okay. Do you believe the individual right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right? Senator, the Supreme Court has established that the individual right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. Could you tell me how you might go about deciding what a fundamental right is under the Constitution? Well, Senator, um, I don't know that I can tell you that in the abstract in the sort of way that that you may have posed the question. Um, There is precedent in the Supreme Court related to um, various rights that the court has recognized as fundamental. The court has some precedence about the standards for determining uh, whether or not something is fundamental. The the court has said that um, the 14th Amendment substantive due process clause um, does support some fundamental rights, but only things that are uh, implicit in the ordered concept of liberty or deeply rooted in the history and traditions of this country 
They're the kinds of rights that relate to personal uh, individual autonomy, and they've recognized a few um, things in that category, um, and that's the tradition of the court for for determining whether something is fundamental in that way. Okay. Okay. So that's Senator Grassley and and uh, Judge Jackson. So uh, I think there was a, a fair amount there to unpack. Um, you know, I think that what we see here is that he's a, he's trying to uh, get a sense of you know what they might be in for in the way of um, you know what Judge Jackson might might see as a as a possible way in which right the rights that are recognized by the court might be expanded over time. Um, what are your comments on that uh, on her on her comments? Vic, why don't we start with you? Certainly. Uh, well, one one move that she clearly makes is a very common one that nominees make. They're asked, uh, "What do you nominee think uh, is the right way to decide what a fundamental right is?" Or, "Nominee, do you think the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right?" And the answer is never what the nominee thinks. The answer is the nominee's understanding of what the Supreme Court has said. So it's more like a, a regurgitation exercise that you might ask a student uh, after having read some cases, tell me what the court's view on this uh, general matter has been. Uh, and again, going back to our earlier conversations, that's not unexpected. No nominee um, has much to gain by venturing her own views on these contested uh, and, and uh, hotly um, uh, so uh, topics. So we saw that uh, move illustrated in her response. Um, I also thought, uh, you know, her indication uh, with regard to the 14th Amendment and the, the concept of so-called substantive due process uh, was interesting. She uh, talked about things that were deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition uh, and, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And I'm never, I've never been sure what that phrase meant. Well, I don't know what's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. But uh, tradition and history is something that conservative justices often try to use as their touchstone for determining rights. And people on the left side of the spectrum uh, typically haven't been as constrained. So take abortion, for example. Uh, it, it may be harder to argue, although some have tried, that, uh, that uh, abortion rights are uh, deeply rooted in uh, the tradition and history of the United States at the time of the 14th Amendment, given the, the state of the, the laws that were on the books then. I know there's been some recent scholarship that tries to uh, kind of push back on that a little bit, but I've never really understood the, the pro- uh, uh, choice uh, folks on the Supreme Court to be talking so much in terms of history and tradition as they are in terms of either bodily integrity or uh, or self-determinism uh, or the like. Um, so it's interesting to me that she signaled an appreciation of the importance of history and tradition, which again is going to be something that plays well to centrists and conservatives on the Senate. If her goal is simply not to alienate those folks any more than she already does, um, she's not going to lose anybody on the left, no matter what, because of the politics of the day. So, uh, so that's probably why she went there. You know, when I, when I'm listening to it, I heard, I heard more than just trying to avoid the, the to answer, answering the question in a sense. I heard a a strong emphasis on precedent. Um, so she didn't talk, for example, about. Uh, much about what the Constitution itself said. She did talk about the amendments, but she didn't talk much about what the Constitution itself said. Um, and she also made reference to the substantive due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, now, notice, notice I called it the substantive due process doctrine. Because, right, because I, but I'm not aware that there is any substantive due process clause of the 14th. And, and in fact, I think I, I'd, I'd love it if... if uh, you know, either you or Akil maybe give us a little bit of a of a primer here on sub, on substantive due process because this is going to come up again in some of the, the the quotes later. It's it's just just for our, a little background for our audience uh, ahead of these other clips. A lot of especially Republicans tend to use the phrase substantive substantive due process as a meme for judges making stuff up. Okay, they do, and so just just kind of in really basic terms. The, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments both say that 
Uh, the government cannot deprive people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And an ordinary meaning of, due, of process is procedure. What, what hoops or hurdles does the government have to go through before it invades somebody's liberty or property? So, for example, if government wants to lock you in jail, it's got to give you a trial. It's got to give you a lawyer if you can't pay for one. It's got to give you a right to appeal to a higher court, et cetera. Those are procedural things. Um, but uh, for many, many um, a century or decades, I should say, uh, the Supreme Court has also uh, at times um, invested in the due process clause a substantive component um, uh, under which the question is not what procedures government must go through in order to accomplish its goals, but whether government can accomplish its goals at all. So, for example, a little over 100 years ago, the due process clause was invoked by a conservative Supreme Court to invalidate uh, laws by states like New York that regulated maximum hours that workers could work in bake shops in a very famous case called Lochner versus New York. And the court said that the due process clause forbid, forbade New York from interfering with the choices made by the bakers and the employees. So that was so-called economic substantive due process, which is more or less dead today, um, except perhaps insofar as the Supreme Court continues to regulate punitive damages um, that the juries award and say, for example, uh, that the punitive component cannot exceed the compensatory component by a ratio of greater than 10 to 1. That seems kind of substantive to me when you say you uh, lay down a bright line rule about how many punitive damages a, a jury can award. But the, the modern debate over substantive due process tends to involve personal autonomy, things like abortion and child rearing and uh, contraception. Now, notice, by the way, Andy, even the conservatives embrace substantive due process in certain respects. Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a case that uh, Akhil and I have talked about at other times, um, in which the Supreme Court invalidated Connecticut's uh, law that prohibited the, uh, the uh, uh, use of, of contraception, um, conservative justices think that that decision was correctly decided under the Due Process Clause, presumably, uh, and, uh, and it's just between contraception and abortion that they seem to see some uh, distinction. Akhil, anything to say on this? Um, yes, lots. Um, yeah, this, is a, this is a Marcus Constitution. Um, no, just and we've got uh, two Amars he, to prove it. I know, he's an Amar, he's an Amar as well. So, so let me begin in the spirit of absolute charity by saying Judge Jackson's argument, uh, her answer was probably no different than the answer that um, any other sane nominee, Republican or Democrat, might have given it. It was um, um, solid, um, but uh, generic. The, the question was a you know a standard question. Now, uh, Vic said, you know, she played it safe, and um, she didn't um, in the answer lose anyone on the left. She just recited basically um, uh, as if this were a test what the Supreme Court has said. She didn't lose anyone on the left, true, and it was generic, and I, I honestly wasn't very different than um, most nominees, left or right, might have said. She didn't lose anyone on the left. She also didn't gain anyone on the right. It's all kabuki theater. Um, uh, you and I and Vic, Andy, are recording this Monday night, and the Senate Judiciary Committee has voted 11 to 11 on party lines. So no one's mind was changed, and as I said, this was basically true of Kavanaugh both before and after Christine Blasey Ford. It was basically true of Gorsuch and of Amy Coney Barrett. So these were all almost party line votes um, start to finish. That said, here's a slightly less charitable. But, but, but before, you, before you get there, Phil, let me say, she, she didn't, you said she didn't pick anybody up. Maybe she shored up Joe Manchin. Um, uh, because remember, you know, this was early in the hearing and, and he was somewhat, um, uh, unknown at that point. Maybe, but he, you know, has given no indication that he actually, you know, he voted for, for the court of appeals. And so, so let me, um, uh, just go back. Look, there are reasons why she recited Supreme court case law because, that doesn't get you into trouble. It's just you're making factual statements and you're showing that you know your stuff um, in a way that maybe Harriet Myers 
um, would not have been able to do quite so well had um, she was nominated by George W. Bush, but then withdrawn before any confirmation hearing. And I don't know whether she could have, as it were, uh, passed her oral exams. Um, so um, she shows that she knows her stuff. And as I said, she didn't say anything um, uh, different than what m- many nominees would have said. She showed herself to be a lower court judge because that's what lower court judges do is apply Supreme Court precedent. And as we've discussed in earlier episodes, that's not just what Supreme Court justices do because they decide whether the precedent should be extended or limited or overruled. Um, But what she does day in and day out is apply Supreme Court precedent, and so that's what she talked about. And that's the safe thing to do uh, because she's not saying what she thinks so much is what the Supreme Court has said and is what other nominees have said. Now, that said, oh, she used words that to me, honestly, are like nails on a chalkboard, Andy, and you picked it up because you know me and where I'm coming from. She called it, and Vic mentioned this, the substantive due process clause, and I'm thinking there is no substantive due process clause. There's the due process clause, and process means process, not substance. Vic said that more politely. I'm saying that in, the, in a more edgy way. Vic said, oh, well, even conservatives understand, uh, accept the idea of substantive due process. Oh, I don't know. They accept Griswold versus Connecticut, but Griswold versus Connecticut can be understood as a Fourth Amendment case about intrusions into the, the home. The house is actually mentioned in the Fourth Amendment. So, so I, I'm, I, I'm not sure, but there is no substantive due process clause as such. Now, lawyers talk that way. Um, well-trained graduates of the Harvard Law School talk that way every day. Professors of a certain sort talk that way, but I would never speak that way because fo- I care about the Constitution and what it actually says. Here's now the secret that I'm letting the audience in on. Judges generally don't look at the Constitution. They don't, they don't focus on what the Constitution actually says and doesn't say. They just focus on what the Supreme Court has said because that's their job. They're judges on inferior courts. So that's what they know. So that was in poker, a tell or something, when she said substantive due process clause. She's revealing herself, I think inadvertently probably, to be frankly not an originalist of a certain sort because a certain kind of originalist wouldn't say it that way. Now, maybe, actually, this is all, you know, um, um, very um, elaborate. She's saying it a certain way to signal that she actually is, oh, she's thought about all this stuff. She knows that, maybe, um, but she's actually a precedent person. Maybe so, but now, if so, that's inconsistent um, with being an originalist person of a certain sort who would never use the phrase substantive due process clause. So, look, it's... Um, like when George W. Bush, you know, called it nuclear rather. Than, now, maybe actually that's how, he, how he, you know, he, 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 what he thinks, or maybe he's signaling. He knows it's nuclear, not nuclear, but he's actually signaling a certain um, affinity with a certain group. Andy, you and I know that that senator from Nevada actually knows how to pronounce Michael Corleone's name, the Italian way, yes. you know. But, but when he's, he's a senator and when he's in front of the public, he intentionally mis pronounces it a certain way, but then he signals, I know, I know how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. okay? So what I'm not sure of, honestly, is whether that was just a slip on her part, whether she's even, oh, oh, and but she, she knows the issue, or whether she actually truthfully may not be as into all these fine points, Andy, the way you are, and you're a retired ophthalmologist, that actually it is not technically the substantive due process clause. It is the substantive due process doctrine. Um, and, and here's what she also didn't say, and no other nominee would. She didn't say, well, the Supreme Court has said this, but here's what scholars have said. You know, and there's this scholar who said X. There's, you know, there's Professor Tribe, and Professor Tribe has said this, and there's Professor Vikamar, and, and, and he said that, and there's Professor Akilamar, and he said that. Now, no nominee has ever done that. But my view is if you want to actually be a great Supreme Court justice, you need to go beyond the precedence. You need to actually engage the Constitution itself. It, it requires many years of, um, of reading and research, and that still lies a- a- ahead for her because most lower court judges aren't, don't have the ability to do that while also doing their day job, which is following what the Supreme Court has said. Well, you know, she also said that the Supreme Court has laid out um, – 
you know, a way in which you would evaluate whether or not uh, something was a fundamental right. But then she didn't say what that method was. Um, so, uh, and I'm not sure that I really agree that the Supreme Court has definitively said this is how you determine what a fundamental well, right she said one other thing that was kind of fun. She says, well, you're asking me a very general question. I'm not sure I can ask her, answer this you know, generally. Of course, when you ask them a specific question, she says, oh, they would say, oh, that's a specific question. That's a specific track pattern. Right. So you can't ask them you know, too general a question. You can't ask them too specific a question. And this is because I think Vic was fundamentally right long ago, and frankly, I was fundamentally right long ago, in saying that the hearings aren't eliciting actually that much genuinely useful information because the kind of questions that really should be asked and answered aren't being asked and answered. Vic? So a couple things. First, um, Andy, to your point, she did, again, try to uh, define the court's methodology with regard to substantive due process in terms of things that are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty and or things that are deeply rooted in history and tradition. It wasn't, um, uh, she didn't really elaborate on what those things meant, but that's that's her understanding of, of the standards, if, uh, to use her term, that the Supreme Court has, has invoked. But getting back to the big point that Akhil made, I, I guess I want to add two things. This is not unique to substantive due process. While you were talking, I, I pulled up a dissent that uh, then-Justice Rehnquist, before he was chief, um, uh, wrote in a case involving the so-called Dormant Commerce Clause Doctrine. Um, because dormant commerce is something like uh, substantive due process that sometimes people think there's a dormant commerce clause. And here's what uh, uh, Rehnquist said uh, in uh, somewhat wry uh, uh, prose. Casual readers of this court's commerce clause decisions if, yeah, I don't know who's ca who casual readers of the court's Commerce Clause decisions are, by the way, but casual readers of this court's Commerce Clause decisions may be surprised upon turning to the Constitution uh, itself to discover that the clause just says commerce, doesn't say dormant commerce. So um, this is not – sometimes all this doctrine gets uh, um, uh, uh, too much for, for uh, all the, the – uh, in a lot of areas, not just substantive due process. But Akhil's point about how lower court judges – go straight to the Supreme Court test and, uh, and, and case on point, it's not just lower court judges. As Akhil has said, many Supreme Court justices, indeed people who hold themselves out as originalists, often start their opinions by saying not, the question we must decide today is what the 14th Amendment or the First Amendment means in this setting. This, they'll say something in, like, instead, the question we must decide today is, is whether this phrase in our past case applies in a particular way to the set of facts we have before us. So it's everybody on the court that immediately goes to the doctrine and less to the document, as, as Akhil wrote a while ago in one of the, our jointly authored columns. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we could go on with this for quite a while, but let's, we're going to come back to some of this stuff when we, when we visit with Senator Cornyn um, in a little while. Um, but uh, I think we can agree that from the point of view of the question, that it was a reasonable question that uh, Senator Grassley asked. And of course, he started off the question by asking about the Second Amendment, um, or at least, a, at least the right to bear arms, shall we say. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, of note, she said, well, the Supreme Court has recognized that it's a fundamental right to keep and bear arms. And again, that was sort of interesting because, <laughs> uh, you know, the, again, this is, that, that's not something an originalist would say, that the Supreme Court has recognized it, you know. But um, anyway, okay. It's, it's, it's not something an originalist would say. It also, Andy, it, it actually also really deprives the questioner of much meaningful information for the simple reason that although the Supreme Court has said there is an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense, et cetera, in Heller and McDonald, there's still so many unresolved important questions about the scope of the Second Amendment's rights, how, it, how they're balanced against those, uh, the needs of, of uh, society to deter violence. And so much of that, that game is still up for grabs. So it'd be nice to know not just whether someone has read Supreme Court opinions, but what they think about this stuff. Right, and, and actually, one, and here's one other just point about Baxter. I don't know how much this is what's in Senator Grassley's mind or not. His constituents care a lot about guns. A lot of people in rural America do. Um, there's a real rural-urban divide on, on this issue, but it goes back to Sonia Sotomayor's hearings. She gets asked questions about a then recently decided case, 
Heller, and she seems to signal that she accepts it. Heller held that there was an, right of, an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection that applied under the Second Amendment against the federal government. The original Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, was designed mainly to apply against, uh, basically to apply against the federal government. And she seemed to signal that she accepted that in her confirmation hearings. But then when uh, on the court, she dissented in a case that Vic mentioned, City of Chicago versus McDonald, it was about whether to apply that right against states and localities. And I just can't help you know, uh, mentioning to the audience that that was a case of first impression where there's not the many precedents. And so the court actually relied on what the Constitution actually said, you know, and different justices might disagree about that. But the court relied on a lot of original scholarship because there wasn't a lot of case law. And in fact, uh, Justice Alito's opinion for the court um, uh, relied on my own work, um, um, uh, citing it six different times. And, and Justice Thomas in the concurrence cites it a couple of times. Justice Breyer in the dissent cites it. And so you're going to get originalist opinions when there's not a lot of case law, um, which there wasn't pre-Heller, and there wasn't on City of Chicago versus McDonald. Now, how does that relate to the confirmation hearings and Soto- Justice Sotomayor? Justice Sotomayor dissented, fine, but her dissent basically tried to relitigate Heller. It didn't just say, well, Heller is right, but it doesn't apply against state governments, and here's why. She wanted to actually go and 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 she, you know, and she and as a result of that. Whether she was aware of it or not, I believed at the time she had just made life much more difficult for the next nominee, who happened to be Elena Kagan. Because the next nominee on the Democratic side, I predicted to people at the time, was going to face much more skepticism because conservatives were going to say when Solicitor General uh, Kagan ends up giving the mm-hmm. same kind of answer that nominee Sotomayor gave, when nominee Kagan gives that same answer, they're going to say, fool us once you know, shame on you, fool us twice, shame on us. We fell for that last time, and, 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 and nominee Sotomayor told us what we wanted to hear, but then look what she did in, in Heller. So this is in, in a, one of the dog whistle issues for conservatives, but part of the deep background of this, again, I don't know even how aware every single person in the room is, but activists of a certain sort are, they thought that, that Justice Sotomayor kind of fudged and finessed that in ways that were misleading. When, of course, she, when uh, Justice Sotomayor was a nominee, um, and before that very same committee, answering a remarkably similar question about um, gun rights. But of course, then you you know it's it doesn't stop there. You know you you have her doing that, then you have uh, you know Kagan uh, now Justice Kagan give you know having difficulty as a result. And then subsequent nominees will then be more motivated to say nothing, you know, because, you know, or the, or the equivalent of nothing, because, you know, you, you, you can't win either way. If you tell them what they want to hear, then you lose, or, or the next guy loses. If you tell them what you really think, then you also get screwed, so all you can say is nothing. So it's, uh, and, and that's a problem, as we've said. Okay, so let's, let's move on now. Um, to and we do and we said that here you just pointed out that Senator Grassley uh, raised a, a question which his constituents would be happy to that he raised brought up gun rights. Now we have a question. I believe this is from Senator Sass, um, and I think we have something kind of a similar phenomenon going on here. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the troubling pattern we see on law school campuses and across higher education more broadly, uh, especially in the last five years. Um, There's obviously a trend toward shouting down and canceling opinions that are outside the left-leaning mainstream, Uh, calls for firing professors, canceling professors, uh, shouting down and sometimes threatening speakers who bring uh, divergent, uh, diverse opinions, Um, calls to discipline fellow students. These tactics are increasingly commonplace, um, particularly against conservative speakers and professors and students, but also uh, increasingly against traditional liberals. Um, I'm a former college president, and one of the sort of oddities uh, that doesn't fit inside the tribalism of how a lot of times media covers things uh, in D.C., one of the oddities for me is how often I have liberal professors reaching out to me 
saying that their experience on campus is becoming much less interesting, um, that the divide on American political campuses is less and less uh, conservative policy leaning versus liberal or progressive policy leaning, um, but more and more liberal versus illiberal. Um, and I think these campaigns are obviously deeply problematic. They shut down debate uh, rather than teaching students how to engage ideas that they might not have encountered before, which is also a pretty decent definition of education. Uh, if you already knew everything before you ever encountered a new idea, you wouldn't need to write checks or take time off of um, productive life. So there's obviously a tendency in response for students to self-censor rather than learn from each other. And this robs students of the chance to engage with ideas um, from across the political spectrum. But in particular, in law schools, um, it robs students of the opportunity to learn how to consider an alternate po position and argue a different uh, point of view than they might have had. So uh, given that you're a debate champion in earlier days as well, I'd, I'd like to ask if you agree that law students uh, should be engaging with ideas from across the political spectrum, even those they disagree with, rather than trying to shun those different ideas. Thank you, Senator. Um, let me just say, uh, in part because these issues are things that could implicate matters that come before the courts, I will just say that as a general matter, um, law school, like many schools, is a place where um, ideas and perspectives are considered. And in the law, uh, as I've said, um, it's important for the judge who's making the decision to have different arguments. And so one of the things uh, that traditionally happens in law schools is that um, you are trained in law to um, make arguments that are at times not even the arguments that you personally agree with, because the understanding is that in litigation, in disputes that come before the court, the court is going to want to hear from different viewpoints. Uh, so in that sense, the, the essence of legal instruction is to have different arguments being made because that models in great part what happens in a courtroom. Okay. So this is probably not your typical confirmation question, but um, it, you know we know that this is on the minds of, of people across the country and particularly, I think, in uh, you know, more conservative states. But of course, we have with us today, uh, you know, a leading academic in Nikhil and another leading academic in Vic, who also is an administrator in, in that he's the dean of a law school. Um, and Nikhil is at the Yale Law School, where there's been some issues uh, relevant to this question about campus speech. So um, I ask you both to comment on on th these issues, first of all, as it regards the hearing, but also you know, as, uh, in, in terms of your own experience and what's going on in your campuses. So, Andy, let me, it's Akil here. Let me jump in first on, on this. I thought both the questioner and the, the answerer did an excellent job on this one, and here's why. And, and it might not be actually about their uh, uh, the nominee's constitutional vision, um, but... Uh, but so many things are ruled off the table because Vic's proposal and mine about what the confirmation conversation should be about, the, uh, our ideas haven't been accepted. So here's what we saw here uh, in, in that exchange. What we saw is um, earlier I said what we're, uh, Vic and I agreed you're hearing from a nominee who's an inferior uh, court judge and a judge on an inferior court. Um, and a judge on inferior court spends most of their time thinking about what the Supreme Court has said, okay? So that's what you heard in the first answer. What you heard in this answer is a judge who is a judge and a, um, a former debater and a, a lawyer who really understands this because it's not unique to the Supreme Court. It's a deep part of our legal system um, and adjudication at a, a trial court or a court, and she's been a trial court judge for many years, a court of appeals at the court of appeals level, and she's recently been on a court of appeals. 
you have to have a system where the lawyers on each side make strong arguments. And Vic mentioned that in a previous podcast, that even he made arguments that, as a lawyer that perhaps he actually didn't think were the single best interpretation of the law, but it was the best argument on one side, and it was up, up to the court to make the decision. And he, as a lawyer before that court, was going to give the court the best argument on one side, and presumably someone else would give them a good argument on the other side, and then the court would decide. And she, in this answer, I think showed herself to be a lawyer's lawyer and a judge's judge um, and a debater's debater in really um, uh, uh, siding strongly with the, the, the liberal, not as opposed to conservative, but the liberal as opposed to the illiberal, a position, which is this is how we do things in an academy. Um, this is how we do things in a law school. This is how we do things in a court. We hear good arguments on each side, and we don't shut down the arguments. We articulate them each side. So I think Ben Sassu was very um, uh, much uh, um, uh, interested in education, and he himself has a um, higher law degree, a PhD. There are not that many PhDs, I think, in the U.S. Senate. So he cares about this issue, and maybe his constituents do because it's a culture war thing and and it's an anti-elite thing because some of the biggest problems, or some of them, have been at, at fancy elite law schools. So, But I thought he was extremely thoughtful in his articulation of the, the, the problem, um, and I thought she was very good in her answer. I think Ben Sass was uh, actually the president of a university. Uh, ah, well, then you, and you're, you're hearing that then. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I have a, a several um, observations from my vantage point as an administrator. One thing I would say at the outset is that um, Senator Sass was playing to his home crowd and his base in the sense that this is not just a problem from the left. You have, you have a lot of conservatives, especially in K-12 settings, but even in higher education settings as well, wanting to remove books from libraries and cancel the authors thereby, et cetera. So this is you know, not something that's exclusively a problem of, of, of woke people on the left side of the spectrum. All right. So as Akil said, there was, there was news made today in the, sen- in the sense that the vote was 11 to 11. Uh, and um, actually, it's kind of interesting because... You know, if you listen to that conversation that we just heard with Senator Sass and, and Judge Jackson, it was pretty amiable conversation. They seemed to agree. And actually, Ben Sass was very complimentary to uh, Judge Jackson throughout the hearings. I don't remember any time that he had any, any question or anything that would indicate that he was anything but impressed with her and in favor of her confirmation. And now he votes against it. Okay, so here we are. Uh, that news was made. But even during the hearing, some news was made. And uh, I'm going to play you a clip here where, you know, I consider this to be some news that was made during the hearing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Senator. Under Article Three of the Constitution, uh, federal courts have jurisdiction over only cases and controversies, uh, which means under the Constitution it has to be an actual dispute that federal courts cannot simply issue advisory opinions on on a question they may have a view on. And one component of Article III jurisdiction is the requirement of standing, that in order for a plaintiff to have standing to bring a case, that that plaintiff, at least generally speaking, must have a a real and concrete injury. Is is, is that right? That is correct. Um, So, for example, uh, that, that, that means that that even if I might have a disagreement with some particular policy or some particular law, that that I can't bring a case unless I am personally aggrieved by that policy or that law. Uh, So, for example, your and my alma mater, Harvard, uh, is currently being sued for its explicit and, in my view, egregious policy of discriminating against Asian Americans. Uh, Even though I think that policy is egregious, I, as an individual plaintiff, could not bring a lawsuit challenging it uh, because I am not Asian American. Is that right? If you brought a lawsuit, um, the court would have to evaluate whether you had an actual injury in order to be able to determine whether it had subject matter jurisdiction to hear the suit. But but if I'm not in the class being discriminated (laughs) against, then I don't have the ability to bring the lawsuit. Is that right? I think I, you'd have to have an actual injury 
certainly people, I think, who are in the class could claim that they had an injury for that purpose. So now you're, you're on the Board of Overseers of Harvard. If you're confirmed, do you intend to recuse from this lawsuit? That is my plan, Senator. Okay. Okay. So I thought that was that was news. That was one of the questions, you know, entering into the hearing was what, what was she going to be asked about it, of course, and what would she say? So what what is your reaction to this? Um, are you surprised that she actually answered the question? Uh, do you agree that, from what you know of the case, that this is appropriate? And do you have any thoughts about recusal uh, in light of other news stories lately? Andy, there were actually two different um, uh aspects um, to that discussion, you know, Ted Cruz, I guess, wants to remind people who went to Harvard, okay, but the first was all about who can bring a lawsuit and standing and case and controversy, and, and, and I actually thought she was um, very careful yes. in her answer to that, very lawyerly. In fact... You know, if you are a scholar of a certain sort, you could have said, well, actually, there's a difference between case and controversy if you're an originalist sort, and controversy might be about a disagreement, but, you know, some scholars have said case isn't about that, and yes, you say standing, but actually the doctrine of standing wasn't, in fact, constitutionalized until the middle of the 20th century, and, you know, what it means to actually be aggrieved is a rather complex question, um, having uh, the question of law as uh, um, in, in, in various interests. But she didn't go there because um, she's not a fed jur, um, federal jurisdiction scholar of a certain sort. Um, but what she did do is answer the question very carefully the way actually a good judge would um, actually tracking some of the, the classic formulations um, of the Supreme Court on this topic. So very um, well um, socialized um, um, lower court judge who uh, understands what the Supreme Court has said, even though truthfully, I think some of what the Supreme Court has said in this area has not been very coherent, truthfully. Um, A famous article by David Curry um, is actually called Misunderstanding Standing. And there are many other distinguished scholars who have actually said the law of standing is, is actually rather convoluted. But she's, she, she did answer the way a certain kind of scholar might. She answered very well the way um, a really good lower court judge and, and, and even said, so um, I couldn't bring a suit. And she actually didn't quite say yes mm-hmm. to that. She said, well, you could if you were in the class. She was, right. She yeah, was, his question was, you know, he w- was not a precise question. I know it was extreme, but, but mm-hmm. she, she was very, very mm-hmm. good. In, and it started very cordially, you know, judge, senator, hello, hello, good afternoon. Um, but, but, and then he switched, you know, very dramatically from that set of abstract questions about case, controversy, jurisdiction, Article 3, advisory opinion, all this stuff, you know, who's in the relevant class, to um, um, a recusal question, which is actually a rather different question. Um, and um, and good for her. I do think if this is a lawsuit against Harvard policy, and you are a, a Harvard policy maker of a certain sort, if you're on the, 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 the board of governors, the board of overseers, the trustees, whatever um, Harvard calls it, at, at Yale, we call it, you know, you're on the Yale Corporation, that yeah, you shouldn't be hearing the case because this is basically a case about Harvard and you are... Um, uh, you know, well, part of the, the the governance structure of Harvard. This is a suit against basically policies that you're overseeing to some extent. So good for her. She didn't, and, and she was so careful. She didn't even say, "I promise to," because even a promise, even if it's not on the merits, but just to recuse, could be understood as improper. She didn't say that. She said, "I plan to." Good. I, I, so I was. I think that was actually well played on her part. So I, I agree with everything Akhil said. That, let's go to the first part, the technical standing analysis. I'm not sure what Senator Cruz was really trying to elicit there. Uh, he kept saying, well, I, Senator Cruz, wouldn't be, have standing to, to, to sue Harvard, even if I'm uh, uh, offended by what they did. Uh, I think the judge was exactly right to say, well, I'd have to look carefully at what your assertive injury would be. Um, there's oftentimes where people are not part of the group that's being discriminated against who nonetheless are conferred standing by the Supreme Court because they're injured in some other way. 
Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, the 14th Amendment um, uh, uh, may protect against certain kinds of, of discrimination. Uh, and if, if you, in, in Craig versus Boren, for example, if you sell beer to young men and young men are discriminated against in, in their ability to purchase beer, as a beer vendor, you actually suffer an injury and you have Article Three standing and injury in fact. So I think she was very good in saying, I need to see exactly what injury you allege before I decide whether you have standing. Um, but on the second point, I agree with Akhil. Good for her. She didn't. She didn't promise. She just predicted, saying that would be my plan uh, right now. But a couple of more kind of real politique points. First of all, um, if she's gonna if she's gonna recuse after uh, confirmation, might as well get some points for admitting it now, right? It, it, like you said, it didn't it didn't win over <laughs> Ted Cruz or, or or Ben Sass? But at least she's trying. At least she's trying to find some common ground. Why not? Um, the other thing is, whether she recuses or not is really unlikely to matter in that case, because the votes are going to be what they're going to be, whether it's 6-3 or 6-2, um, uh, or, or even if someone surprises us and it, it would have been 5-4, uh, to four, now it'll be 5-3, to three, uh, it wasn't going to likely change the result in that, that, that lawsuit. So why not um, uh, uh, do the right thing and maybe put some implicit pressure on Clarence Thomas, who is under a lot of scrutiny these days about whether he will recuse uh, in cases involving uh, January 6th and, uh, and presidential election uh, of 2020 more generally um, because of uh, the tweets of his, his wife, uh, Virginia. If, uh, if she recuses herself in that case, can she still participate in deliberations or make arguments or, or talk or talk to the person that writes the no, decision no, no, no. or anything? Means you're, you're okay. out. So, so that, so that would be, so it's not, not just a question of the votes then, because she might have, you know, a legal theory that she would like to, uh, you know, expound and she won't have the opportunity to do that. So, I mean, right. I, ultimately she should either, she should either recuse or. None of that would matter in that case anyway. I don't know that there, any of them is particularly and, open-minded in that and, case. And, and, and Andy, on the specifics of your question, uh, Vic is absolutely right. If you recuse, you should just, you know, be out of the conversation, out of the loop. Um, but in one of the most famous recusal cases of all time, and standards on this have changed over the centuries, John Marshall, who had a financial interest in a, a certain land dispute involving um, the northern neck of Virginia and his family um, had a legal interest, his brother, um, recused himself in a case called Martin versus Hunter's Lessee. It's one of the most famous um, martial court opinions of all time. It's perhaps the most famous martial court opinion um, where the uh, court decision was actually um, uh, authored by someone other than Marshall himself because Marshall recused himself because his land and his family's land was at issue. So the opinion was written by Joseph Story. That said, we now know that some of actually the, the, the legal briefs and, and, and legal documents on one side were in, in John Marshall's hand, which is very and handwriting, which was very recognizable. So the justices knew that he was in, basically, you know, involved as a lawyer, in effect, um, um, in, in the case. Um, he lived in the boarding house with the justices. Um, apparently, they, they talked about the case, I think, because Joseph Story's son, William Wetmore, um, story said some things that are very suggestive, and and Joseph Story sent out very proudly to his friends copies of his opinion. He said, "Here's my opinion of the court in Martin versus Henders Lessee." John Marshall concurred in every word of it, <laughs> and and his son actually said, "This is one of my father's best opinions. It has many of the virtues of Marshall's best opinion." And he goes on, leading some people to speculate Marshall may have even helped ghostwrite Story's opinion. Um, I don't think he did that, but I think he did. Talk talk about the case with his colleagues um, and actually acted as a lawyer in a case where he supposedly had totally recused himself. But Vic is 100% correct. That's not recusal law today. That was recusal law in um, um, circa 1816. It's also kind of interesting, too. Akio points out that you know uh, legal and professional ethics have really evolved. And one of the directions in which they evolved, evolved is um, to uh, encourage people to recuse 
not only when they have an actual conflict of interest, but when their impartiality might be reasonably questioned by other people. So it's a matter of appearances. Uh, George Will wrote a column I just read the other day about, about uh, how we take appearances too seriously. And so in some ways, John Marshall kind of staying out of, the, of, of signing the opinion and doing all the ghostwriting, maybe that kind of uh, accomplished the appearances that, that are driving some modern instincts. Well, and speaking of the, the stories with John Marshall, if you're looking for John Marshall gossip, I mean, this is the this podcast is the place to go because we've already discussed whether or not uh, John Marshall uh, was an ancestor of Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, and and another time whether uh, Horatius, uh, the, the uh, author of uh, op-eds promoting John Marshall for the presidency in the election of 1800, uh, was actually John Marshall. So. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, uh, this is the the, the Marshall gossip. John Marshall is a wily one. Yes, um, and and in in Marbury versus Madison himself, speaking of recusal, he had firsthand knowledge of adjudicate fact. It was his hand personally that affixed the great seal of the United States onto William Marbury's commission, which ordinarily should have obliged him to recuse himself. It was his brother. Who failed like, to, to failed to deliver the commission. Who failed to? Yes, his brother was named Vic. No, no, no. Um, just, okay. um, his kid brother actually was involved in the facts of the case. And today, that would be a classic case for his, his brother submitted an affidavit to the court and um, in Marbury versus Madison. The court was sitting in original jurisdiction where the facts had not been found by a pre-existing lower court or jury. So, so today, we would say Marbury versus Madison is a classic case for recusal because of Marshall's own involvement and the involvement of his brother in the facts of the case. Martin was another one. Recusal standards have changed over time. So, all right. So we've been listening to some questions. And actually, after two weeks of complaining about the questions, these haven't been, you know, that bad in terms of the exchange. So, uh, you know, in the good and the bad and the ugly uh, spirit, um, here's a question from Senator Graham. Okay. Uh, in your nomination, did you notice that people from the left were pretty much cheering you on? A lot of people were cheering me on, That's Senator. True. That's true. Did you know that a lot of people from the left were trying to destroy Michelle Childs? Did you notice that? Senator, a lot of people were supporting various people for this nomination. So you're saying you didn't know there was a concerted effort to disqualify Judge Childs from South Carolina because she was a union-busting, unreliable Republican in disguise? Senator, I was, I'm a sitting judge. I yeah. was focused but, but, on my but, cases. Well, the answer I, is no, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. <clears throat> Would it bother you if, sir, uh, if that happened? S Senator, it is troublesome that people are or were doing things related to I think the that's the best way to, to say it. People have a right to speak out and pick the person of their choice. But all I can say is that if you miss the fact that there was an organized effort, well, here's President Biden has only a certain amount of political capital for keeping his party united. If he needlessly angers progressives on this SCOTUS pick, that could create all sorts of problems for him down the line, Jeff Hauser, revolving door projects. Uh, let's see. I just got so many quotes. It's difficult to imagine someone with a record like Judge Childs winning votes from criminal justice advocates like Senator Cory Booker, even Dick Durbin. Uh, Child's experience is nothing like the diversity of experience that the Biden administration has championed. Uh, this just, let's see. Picking her, Child's, would demoralize the base, side with corporate America. The fact that Lindsey Graham is vouching for her should give the White House pause. Our revolution, Joseph Gervangi, or whatever his name is, I'm sorry about that, Joseph. He's Bernie Sanders' PAC director. You didn't know that all those people were declaring war on Judge Childs? Senator, I did not. Okay. Well, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm not saying you did. I'm, you said you didn't know. I'll take it at your word. But I am saying that 
What is your judicial philosophy? So I have a methodology that I use in my cases in order to ensure that I am uh, ruling impartially and that- So your judicial philosophy is to rule impartially? No, my judicial philosophy is to rule impartially and to rule consistent with the limitations on my authority as a judge. And so my methodology actually helps me to do that in every case. So you wouldn't say that you're an activist judge? I would not say that. Okay. <clears throat> so we'll have a 20 minutes more later on, but here's what I would say. That every group that wants to pack the court, that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts that are going to destroy America, that consider the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And this is all I can say is the fact that so many of these left-wing radical groups that would destroy the law as we know it declared war on Michelle Childs and supported you is problematic for me. Thank you. Okay. Well, I was speechless after I heard this. Um, your comments. Well, I thought it was going to be a lot worse than that, actually, Andy. You, you, you had told me a bit about it. Um, so... I don't think in the end, Judge, uh, excuse me, uh, Senator Graham really laid a glove on the nominee. I think she acquitted herself well. She spoke with a dignity and, and restraint. It is true that people care a lot about who's on the Supreme Court, and it's a free country, and they say all sorts of stuff. But what she said is, you know, I'm not telling them to say this stuff. Now, it's a bit of a trick question. Were you aware of it? You might be aware of it if you're actually paying attention. Now, in fact, some uh, potential nominees have actually tried to avoid paying, um, reading the papers too much um, just because it, it can be a big distraction. And she sort of went that way saying, like, I was a judge. I was just trying to, to, to you know, just do my job. Um, here's it's, it's not preposterous for a senator to say, Look, you're not answering the questions. Um, none of your predecessors have, so it's not unique to you. So I'm looking for cues about how you might likely rule. And it's suspicious to me that people whom I don't like, like you. You know, the, you're, the, you're the friend of my enemies, and that makes me politically, or you know, the people whose views I, I, I dislike, and, and that makes me... Suspicious. That doesn't seem. That's, that's not a completely preposterous way of looking at things. I'm not sure I would have ever said that in a, in the in the openly in the hearings. But and and I think the most revealing thing of all is when Graham actually mentioned when these people actually um, uh, um, who was bad mouthing Charles says, "Oh, the problem with Charles is that Charles is 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 supported by Graham." So both sides said, "Ah, there has to be something wrong with Charles." Because Graham likes Childs, that's what people on the left say. That's you know? Graham saying that that people on the left are saying that. Oh, hold on, yeah, but then and then he's saying there's got to be something wrong with you, you know, because you know people on the left like you, just like you know other folks are saying there's got to be something wrong with Childs because because Graham likes Childs, and and this is the world. Oh, you, if someone whom I hate likes you, there's got to be something wrong with you because it can't ever be the case that you could be actually a pretty decent person that lots of people admire, people, you know, across the spectrum. It's now disqualifying, even if you were vouched for by a whole bunch of conservatives, oh, the mere fact that a bunch of hardcore leftists like you too, oh, that's, that's uh, but, but that's not preposterous in our world of intense polarization. Now, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I thought the question was very inartfully and, and elegantly posed. I thought it was not very civil. Uh, she made clear she had nothing to do with any orchestrated campaign against Judge Childs, um, and, and Graham was obviously using this moment to just get out um, a message off of his chest. If, if she had more votes or she could, if, if Judge Jackson could have been edgier, she could have turned the tables and said, Senator, I don't, you know, I don't, ha I didn't have anything to do with any of that, and I hope you wouldn't judge me based on what people who happen to support me um, uh, do. Just as I don't judge you by a lot of people who voted for you, 
um, because among the Republican base and, and, and the people who, who, who put you in office, there are a lot of, you know, to use Hillary Clinton's phrase, you know, people that are, 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 are folks I wouldn't be, she couldn't do that, obviously, in this setting. But, 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 but Graham should be aware of that, that he has people in his coalition that, that he wouldn't want to um, uh, necessarily cozy up with. And, and she should just rem- she could have gently reminded Akil's uh, uh, point in today's world, um, lots of people support lots of people for lots of reasons, and and we shouldn't necessarily attribute everything to the to the nominee or or candidate. See, I I, I, I don't agree with either of you on this. I, I I found that absolutely reprehensible. The United States Senate would get up get up there and say, you know. All, everyone that considers the Constitution trash, that wants to throw out, you know, is is supporting you. What evidence did he provide for that? Zero. Did even did even name anyone that that supposedly held that position? No. He, he's tarring her with invisible people that that hold positions that you know he that he provided no evidence for, and and, and, and that's just character assassination, and and it's not appropriate. You know, for uh, in 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 this, you know, august body, it's and a disgrace. Andy, our, our, our audience couldn't see it, but your eyes especially rolled when he made the pivot. To, so I guess what I'm asking you about is what's your philosophy? Um, now, here's what's interesting because you thought like that was a non sequitur. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I know you. Uh, you know, we're so that, that's what it seemed to me that is is what, what how I was reading your your, your body language and your eye roll. Here's. On her answer on that, here's what she didn't say. And it's fine that she didn't say it. A, a Republican nominee would likely have said, here's my philosophy, I'm an originalist. I'm a textualist. Now, she might have at a certain point said, yeah, I'm a textualist, I'm an originalist, I'm a Preston person, I'm everything. But, but, but on one side of the aisle, um, the standard answer today, this wasn't true 20 years ago, but the meme now is, ah, we are originalists in the Federalist Society, and the Federalist Society has to vouch for someone before um, Donald Trump uh, was going to nominate them. And that's not true on the Democratic side. So she said, oh, I have a methodology, um, but, um, and, and I look at each case carefully, and I read the briefs, and you know, I try to follow the law, and, and blah, blah, blah. But, but what she didn't say, and I didn't expect her to say, is I'm a proud originalist First and foremost, um, um, I'm a precedent follower, um, but but that's actually secondary to originalism or something like that. Um, and again, it, I would have would have fallen off my chair if she had said anything like that. But I do think it's accurate and revealing that she basically said, "Hmm, I don't know about a philosophy. I have a method." And in that, she's not maybe that different than John Roberts, who actually said, hmm, I don't really know about if, uh, if I have a, an overarching judicial philosophy. I, you know, I, 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 all balls and strikes, I take them one at a time. So, um, but John Roberts was um, a while ago. The, the nominees since John Roberts have tended to basically present themselves, um, Amy Coney Barrett, um, uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh especially, as originalists yeah nor nor did she say um i'm a proud living constitutionalist because that's only going to get her in trouble on the other side what she could have said without using these catchphrase uh uh slogans that are you know a little bit um uh over predictive she could have said i'm a judge who takes text seriously especially in historical context I take the purpose or, or, uh, or reasons why certain text was generated very seriously. I look at cases and exactly what they've held in the past. Um, uh, I look at practical concerns. I look at a lot of these factors, but I'm not somebody who ignores any of these to the exclusion of others. And no, yet, I- that's harder to label or pigeonhole, but that, that may be a good judge. I mean, as, as Justice Scalia said about Justice Thomas's originalism that admits of no real room for stare decisis. This is Scalia saying this about Thomas. Uh, This is reported in Jeff Tubin's book, The Nine. Um, uh, He says, well, I, Scalia, I'm an originalist, but I'm not a nut. Um, This is what he's saying about his ally, Clarence Thomas. So again, there's there's always room to style yourself as as someone who takes into account a lot of things. Well, you know, I think that she, you know, she, she, on several occasions in this questioning, not just here, but in other questions, you know, she said something like, um, my philosophy 
you know, is my methodology or my methodology, you know, informs my philosophy. And she, she made a big deal about how her philosophy is to, you know, stay within the constraints of article three and to stay within the, you know, the constraints of, of, of precedent and so forth. So she's very much about, about constraint. Um, and that's why I think when we talked about it earlier, I mentioned that, that she seemed to be someone that was very reliant on precedent. Um, um- Andy, what I was going to say is if she had given Vic's answer in Vic's words, it would have been clear that she's a particularly scholarly sort of judge who is very familiar, let's say, with the work of Philip Bobbitt, mm-hmm. who basically there's not one way of making a constitutional argument. There are several. There are arguments from text, history, structure, press, uh, 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 precedent or doctrine, um, uh, practical consequences and the like. Um, so to be Fair to her, almost no uh, judge has has necessarily read Bobbitt's work. The best judges actually, many of them are in a Bobbitt tradition because Bob is actually describing what judges do, and Bob is describing the method of judging, and he's saying judges, most of them aren't actually just originalists or just textualists. Um, um, So most judges might have, uh, good judges, very good judges might have answered the question just that way, um, uh, the way um, uh, um, that, as she did, but if she'd answered it in Vic's way, it would have been clear, oh, this is a very unusual judge who actually has read scholarship on judging and, and constitutionalism, um, in particular, uh, Professor Bobbitt's scholarship. Well, and I think that this goes, this is in line with her being a lower court judge, that she, yeah. you know, most of her answers were, were answers, you know, that you would give if you were a district court judge and you were trying to be approved for the appellate court or the circuit right. court. Um, and because the word constitution, she hardly uttered, you know, in the, yep. you know, so just for example. Right. right. And that's just true of most district court judges. So here we are. Um, and we've gone through about four or five clips and there are some more good ones actually to come, which I don't think we should ignore. Um, and so I think we're going to do this one more time. Uh, I don't know if Vic will be able to join us again, but if he can, great. Um, if not, it'll be Akil and myself going through the rest of these quotes. Um, uh, Who have you got for us, Andy? I've got uh, I've got some clips from John Cornyn uh, getting into the what, what he what he considers yes the justice the judge rather to nerd out with him, and uh, they get into some substantive due process questions, and that was pretty interesting. And we also have uh, uh, Senator Booker making a, a powerful uh, speech that uh, seemed to have an impact on uh, Judge Jackson. And we have um, another Yale Holly. Law School. Pardon? Don't you have to have some Josh Hawley in there? I was going to say, we have another Yale Law School graduate, uh, Josh Hawley. Yeah, because um, otherwise Cruz, I mean, he'll be upset that you, you, you aired Cruz and not him. Right. Uh, and, and Josh Hawley speaking with... with uh, we, I, I, I have to tell the audience, I left out... The, the extreme badgering, because it just wasn't, it was very unpleasant and it was not informative. So I, ha- I tried to take Hawley at his least unreasonable and, um, and then we have Cory Booker as kind of a response to that. So that's some of the things I think we'd like to go through next week. And, uh, you know, a lot here, I think, I think this was good because we were able to, you know, talk about some constitutional issues and not just in the confirmation through the confirmation lens, uh, although certainly we're able to see, you know, the practical application of some of the things we talked about over the last couple of weeks. So thank you both for that. And we, we will come back to the issues of uh, campus speech um, uh, in, in earnest. Okay. So Vic, thank you again. And uh, Akil, till okay. next time. Thank you.